0: so good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, you know, just by the way, just a quick side note, um, I had the privilege of standing quietly in the corner there just worshiping God along with you guys, and, and it is so good to hear all of your voices. Just lifted up in our declaration of the incredible wonders of God as we sing. And I just want to encourage you guys, uh, kind of like I did last week, a little bit. Like, don't don't hold back from engaging in the worship. We we don't sing because we thought it was cool. I, I mean, singing isn't that cool for half of us. Are you like really and standing and here singing? Uh, here's why we do it: because we were given vocal cords as human beings, not primarily to communicate with each other, though we do do that, and that's important. We were given them primarily to declare our wonder and glory of God once we discover who he is. Everything you have, everything I have is given to bring glory to God. So when you have the opportunity to take these things and use them to express wonder to God, then use them. You know what I'm saying? They don't have to be pretty, just use them. Because we don't sing to be loud or to be cool or we don't not sing because it's weird. We sing to declare the wonders of God. And so whether it is, again, the freedom of expressing with some clapping or some, man, amens or, or just singing from deep inside of yourself and giving it your all because he made you with vocal cords so you could. That's why we do it. So let's do it. You know what I'm saying? Let's do it. So anyways, enough of that. That was just super cool standing there hearing you guys uh, worship. Uh, as uh, you know, if you've been around, we've come through an incredible couple of uh, months here. We came into the Christmas season, traveled through some amazing things as we went through that. And then we came into the new year and uh, as we unpacked vision and the, and the call of God on our lives as we enter into the new year uh, as a church body, uh, our invitation by God to be redemptive on his behalf and the story that he is redeeming and that we need to have the to get out there and find unredeemed things and people and, and do something about it. And, and we talked about the reality of, of the, the, the defiant hope we need to live in. And we, we really come through some great stuff. And then last week we got to take pause, to sit, to relax, to breathe in a bit, to take it all in and to process because we move so fast we forget. And so it's good just to stop and come up for air and, 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 and get the snorkeling mask off and just go, whoa, what have we seen so far and that was awesome. And now we have the incredible privilege uh, together of diving back in, putting the mask back on and heading back down uh, to go and explore the the intricacies, the the complexities, the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is being revealed and unpacked in the letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome that we know as the letter of Romans. Now remember, as a quick reminder, Paul is writing this letter uh, into a very complex, complex scenario. He's writing it to prepare the church in Rome for his arrival. He's planning to move his headquarters over to Rome and he doesn't want to spend a great deal of time once he gets there, discovering that they have all sorts of crazy views of the gospel like he did in Corinth and that he has to spend months unpacking. So he writes a letter to say, just to be clear, here is the clarity of the gospel in the book of Romans. He's writing into an environment where you have a church that is both uh, Gentile and Jewish, but it's additionally complex because the Jews were really what the church started with. They were in leadership in the church. Then they were kicked out of Rome. Remember when the the, the Jews had to leave Rome for a period and the Gentiles that were left in the church had to kind of suddenly take leadership and, and kind of figure themselves out. And then a couple of years later when the Jewish people were allowed to return to Rome, suddenly they come to a church that's now led by the Gentiles and they were leading it and they are in the middle of reintegrating into this church of Jews and Gentiles and mixed leadership and what does it mean and what does the gospel really say about us doing this together even though we were once enemies and that is what Paul is writing into. So as he does, as a matter of reminder before we get to Romans chapter 3 verse 1 which is where we will be today, uh, what has happened in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 to get us to where we are now? In simplicity, to kind of catch you up real quick, I want you to walk with me into a word picture real quick, okay? So imagine yourself in a courtroom. Uh, most of you, I'm sure, have either been in a courtroom or watched a movie with a courtroom in it. And so you know in a courtroom there is a judge, and the judge's job is to determine who is innocent and who is guilty, who is righteous and who is unrighteous, uh, what, what has occurred. And then with the judge, you have a jury. And the jury are a group of peers with the accused... Uh, And they are listening in and they partner with the judge to try to determine whether the accused is in fact guilty or whether they are not guilty, whether they are condemned or whether they are not condemned. And then you have the accused uh, who sits condemned but is uh, placing their hope in the judge and the jury. And then you have the, the attorneys that are working at presenting the facts so that the jury and the judge can make their good determination. So that's a courtroom, right? Then there's a group of people that believe themselves to be in the jury, and a group of people that feel they partner with God on determining the guilt of the other people. And then there's the group of people that are, in fact, the condemned, and they are defending themselves. And then there is Paul, through the Holy Spirit, who is the attorney presenting the evidence. That's what's happening in the first part of the book of Romans, okay? And Paul starts in Romans chapter 1, and he directs his attention at the accused. Romans chapter 1 is the world, the the pagan world, the world that did not know God, the world that did not follow God, the world that did not care about God, that world. Let's, Let's present some evidence, right? How'd that go? And so he says this world, uh, they knew the things of God, they had every reason to follow God. He gave them his creative wonder through creation and yet they did not follow him. And so now their behaviors followed suit and look what ended up happening. You remember Romans chapter 1, the disaster of our human story. And so if you are sitting in the jury box listening to this unpacking, what are you doing? You're thinking, why deliberate? Why go into a secret room? I mean, the evidence is so obvious to the condemning nature of these people. Oh, can, we just, can we just skip the formalities, declare them guilty, and move on? So you can feel it. The jury box, the, the, the Jewish legalists, and the Greek moralists who are all in the jury box uh, from both the secular and the, at that time, people of God perspective. They're all sitting in the jury box looking over at the judge, nodding their heads. Uh, uh the accused. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, fist pump, you got this. You don't even need us. It's so obvious, right? And then chapter two, Paul opens up. I'll just read this to you. I don't have to go there yet. He opens up with these words. Remember this, chapter two, verse one, therefore you have no excuse. And you think that sentence is to the accused, right? Paul's attention right here on the accused, therefore presented evidence, you have no excuse. Go jury, fist pump, boom. But actually, what you don't notice in a moment until the next sentence is that Paul has diverted his attention to the jury box, right? And he goes like this, accused, 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 evidence, evidence, evidence. Yes, amen, amen, amen. And he goes like this, therefore you have no excuse. He diverts his attention to the jury box. Look, we see it here. O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. He just pulled the entire jury box out of the jury and stuck him on the stand and went, you are actually the accused, along with the accused. And so there was the accused, the world, and the evidence is clear. And you, who just passed judgment along with the judge, you're not the jury, folks. You're not the jury. You are the accused, and you are as guilty as the one you just judged. That's a shocking moment. You know, we kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh. But it must have been shocking for the jury, right? Whoa, what just happened? And then for the rest of chapter two, remember, Paul actually speaks directly to the Jewish people, the people of God. Uh, listen Listen to this in, uh, in verse 17 and onward. He says to them, look, uh, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, oh, so beautiful. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And so he moves the jury box into the accused. He basically says to them, listen, your circumcision, the belonging to God, this covenant thing you have that you feel because I'm circumcised, I'm good now. Your behavior that you thought was dutiful, all the stuff you brought to the table to to, to be cool with the judge, it, it's, it's not cutting it. It does not excuse your guilt. It does not remove you from the accused box and it does not cause you not to be condemned. So you are as condemned as your brother who you judged because they ignored god shocking moment right what do you think your response would be to that to that revelation i mean how how would that go for you you thought you were the jury the entire time some some bozo tells you you're not what are you what are you going to do are you going to go oh thank you for revealing that truth to me i'm so glad i now know i'm condemned no you're going to go what are you talking about man So you're gonna argue with him now and and Paul has been around the block enough doing this for years now, engaging with both Gentiles and Jews so he already knows the arguments that are brewing in the minds of those who will read the letter of uh, the uh, Romans. He already knows what's gonna come next and so he beautifully, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually begins to present the very questions that you and I would think if we were moved from the jury box into the accused and immediately jump into a self-defense. Ah, 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 no, this can't be, right? So here's the first question that would emerge if you were in this position. And it's the right question. Take a look at this. Chapter three, verse one. Now you can go there and take a look. Page 1041, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, or Romans chapter three, verse one, if you're using a smart device or one of your own Bibles that you brought. Uh, look at this. So he just said your circumcision doesn't save you. Your, your dutiful actions don't save you. you. You're not right with God as much as your, your jerk brother isn't right with God. And then look at this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Isn't that the the right question? You just spent generations living as the people of God, dutiful toward the Father. You have a covenant relationship with Him where you are circumcised because you belong. All that seemed to matter a great deal, didn't it? For generations that seems to have mattered. God seems to have said that matters and now you're telling me I'm in the same boat as as the others who ignored God. What good was my circumcision? What good is my relationship with the Father? What good is my dutiful actions in the law? Good question, really, really good question. Let me put this into perspective for you. You remember the story of the prodigal son? You guys remember this one? Uh, just in case you haven't heard it or uh, if you don't really remember it, here's the deal, right? So there's a, a dad and he, he has a home and land and he's, and, he, and he's well off and he has an inheritance and all this stuff and, and he has two sons. And one of the sons, the younger one, comes to him one day and says, listen, I don't want to do life under your roof. I don't want to do life your way. I don't wanna, I, I'm smart enough to do it on my own. And so he asks for his inheritance ahead of time and he takes the inheritance and he bails on dad, right? And he he heads out. And then not only does he do that, but he doesn't build a life for himself. He squanders the inheritance on his own pleasures and pursuits, on his own ideologies. He basically lives his own crazy life and, and he goes nuts. And it, it, we, we're not told the whole story other than when the end comes of his journey, it is a giant disaster, right? Right? I mean, he literally doesn't have food to eat. And is a pig pen. You, you start getting the whole mafia experience. He borrowed from the wrong people. He gambled in the wrong places. He's a, and and now, now he's paying the fruit of that. Simultaneously, there's an older brother, and he looks at his younger brother and goes, you, you fool. What an, what an idiot. Dad has everything, You are going to inherit it from him. You're going to have all this. And if you just stick to the plan and you keep keeping dad happy, he will keep giving you cool stuff. And eventually when he dies, we get it all, right? And so the dutiful son, he plays the role of dutiful son beautifully. Now in the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal returns to try to work in the fields with the dad. And instead of the dad saying, sure, you can work in my fields, which would have ticked off the dutiful son anyways, right? Don't, don't, don't give him the fields to work in. He wrote his own story. He's, it's the chapter two of the Romans, right? Oh, the evidence is pl- plain. He, we told him and, and he's getting what is due him. He ignored the father and now he pays the price. What he's going to get when he gets back is dad's judgment. No jerk, go away. But the dad doesn't only give him the fields to work in. He embraces him as a son. That's the story of the prodigal son. And the dutiful son gets ticked off and he's like, you didn't throw parties for me. You've thrown a party for him. What good has it been that I would have been in this house? That's essentially the story, right? Imagine if the story was slightly different. Because here's what's happening here in Romans. Watch this. Instead of the father saying, I'm going to let the, the jerk brother back in the house to be one of us. Which is what the gospel is doing with the Gentile world, right? The Greeks and the pagans. Essentially, the gospel is saying they're in two, and it's already ticking off the jury box, right? But but what if it was worse? What if the dad came to the dutiful son? Young son is still out there going nuts. He's condemned. He doesn't have dad anymore. He doesn't have house. And he comes to the dutiful son one day, and he goes, "Just so you know, all your behaving in my home, all your trying to stay and be dutiful, counts for nothing. You're out." You don't get the inheritance, you don't get my love, you don't get my approval, you don't get anything. In fact, you are as bad as your brother. Can you imagine how shocking that would be? Hold on, how am I as bad as my brother? He took your inheritance and squandered and ignored you. I've been right here living for you. And then God goes, no, you think you have, but you haven't. You're as guilty as him. Out, out. That's what Paul just told them. That's essentially what it sounds like. Paul just told him Now he didn't because he's going to show us something about God that's mind-blowing, but it feels that way. When he says, brother over there is condemned because he ignored God, you think you're the jury box, but you're not. You're also condemned. The conclusion is I'm about to get kicked out of the house. And so, if I'm going to get kicked out of the house and lose everything I've been working to gain from the father, what good has it been to be in this house and work my tail off? I should have taken my inheritance and run with brother because he had a good life. How do you answer that question? Oh, well, let's take a look because Paul answers it. Look at this. So then, what advantage has the Jew? Well, what is the value of circumcision? Why did I bother being the dutiful son? This is ridiculous. Verse two, much in every way, much in every way, to begin with, this isn't even end, this is just begin, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean? That's an odd statement, isn't it? You got the oracles. What are the oracles? Well, the oracles of God is the revelation that God gave to humanity to reveal himself to us. It is the discovery of who God is and what he is doing and what he's going to do. It is the relational dynamic between us and our creator revealed to us from the creator because we could not have known him otherwise. So here's what Paul is saying. What you don't remember is that while your brother, the younger brother, the jerk brother's been out there behaving foolishly because he's doing it his way and reaping the disaster that comes with that, where have you been, Jewish people? You've been with the Father in the house. Did he not pull you from slavery when you were enslaved as a people? Did he not pull you across the Red Sea when you were going to die? Did he not sustain you in the desert when you should have rotted? Did he not cross over you uh, into the promised land and across the Jordan River? Did he not protect you from all those who were against you? And when you behaved foolishly and the consequences of your foolishness played out in you being taken by some other nation, did he not rise up a redeemer and rise up a judge to send and set you free from one uh, empire after the next. Have you not been in the house with God enjoying the fruit of God because you knew God and they did not? You see, what we forget, what they forgot is that being in the house with the father, the gift is being in the house with the father. The gift is the father himself. The gift is knowing the father. The gift is having the father. Because what we often do, what they were doing is, it is not the father that you're interested in, it is what the father can give you that you want. And so you see the father as a hard man with a rule, a set of rules, and if you dutifully follow the rules, then the father will give you what you need and what you want, and if you don't follow the rules, then he won't so you do your part even though you hate it and eventually you'll get what the other brother won't because you've been dutiful that is not the heart of God that is not how God thinks works or behaves the beauty of the oracles of God is that they would know God and have God for themselves the other people didn't have him The younger brother squandering himself was not with the father. There's no photographs. There's no Facebooks. There's no memories. There's no beautiful family moments. He's out wasting his life while you were home with dad. That would be enough if you are now condemned and all you got out of this deal was that out of duty you ended up having the father for most of your life. And now you lose him even if that were true that would be enough but you're not gonna lose him, don't you get it? Not only did you have him, but what he's gonna show you right now is that in your condemnation, he's not kicking you out. He's gonna show you, should I give this away now? Yes, okay. He's going to show you that you're not in the house because you've been dutiful. You're in the house because he's been faithful. Your condemnation is as clear as the one who left, but you both get to stay. Because he's going to invite the other one back and he's going to keep you. Even though your duty was unfounded and your behavior was not faithful and your brother was a jerk. He's going to keep you both. Because that's what God does. I got ahead of myself. That's going to come later. Take a look at this. So you have the father. He is your gift. Do not think that you've lost out because your brother seemed to have a freer life without duty. Your brother's life is a disaster. Now look at this. Look at the next one. I love the next excuse. What if some were unfaithful? Okay, let's. so here's what they're saying to Paul now. If Paul was sitting over coffee with these guys and he was talking this out, and he's like, look, you guys are as condemned as the, as the pagans. And they're like, oh, hold on, hold on. What good has it been to be a Jew then? Everything. You had the father all along. Second argument. Okay, now hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. If we're condemned like they are, then there's a flaw in your logic, Paul. This this doesn't work. You see, they're trying to this is a self-defense. This is them defending themselves to say, "No, no, we're jury. We're jury, Paul. You got this wrong. We are not condemned." Take a look at this. Look at this. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Okay, so this is a good question. You might at first go, what does that mean? Here's what that means. So God is in covenant with his people. And the way a covenant works is that two people enter into the covenant, and then if one of the groups of people fail to stay faithful to the covenant, then the other group of people, other person, is set free from the covenant and does not fulfill the promises. Okay, you with me so far? So, then it is it is true to then believe that God's faithfulness is somewhat dependent on our faithfulness, is it not? Because if we are unfaithful, then God is not obligated to keep his promises to us, which means he won't keep his promises to us, which means that nullifies his faithfulness. So conclusion, we can't be guilty because then God would be unfaithful and he can't be unfaithful, so we're innocent. Not beautiful? You're, you're still, your head's still spinning, I can tell. You're, you're, about 3 p.m. it'll catch you and you're like, oh, oh, I see it now. You see, if we are indeed condemned as you say, Paul, then we would nullify the covenants and then God's faithfulness would not be realized, which would mean we would make God unfaithful. And God would never allow that. So we are faithful because if we weren't, then God would be unfaithful and he can't be. Oh, pull that one back in the jury box. Not yet, not so, not so fast, not so fast. Because you see, they are still assuming, as we often do, that God's faithfulness to us will be affected by our, our unfaithfulness to him. But what he's about to show them is you have no idea how awesome God is. Because you can be as unfaithful as you want, it will never nullify his faithfulness. This is the real story of redemption. The real story of redemption is not you were dutiful, so therefore you get the faithful promises of God. The real story is you were not dutiful, and yet God is faithful. Now look how he answers this. This is so cool. Watch this. By no means, he says in verse four, let God be true through, through, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So here's what he just said. See, Paul is setting the the, the the platter up for us for what's coming in Romans chapter three, verse 21 and onward. Because this has all been the bad news. We're all condemned. There's the bad news. The good news is that our our unfaithfulness is not nullifying God's faithfulness. In fact not only is it not nullifying it it is increasing it because when you are faithful because someone's been faithful to you that's faithfulness. But when you are faithful when someone's been unfaithful to you that's incredible! And so if we have been unfaithful and God still keeps his promises to us, what does that make him? It makes him extraordinary. And that's what Paul is setting the platter up for right now. He's going, what you're going to discover as we finish the book of Romans out in the next 14 years uh, is, is that at the end of the day, your unfaithfulness is real and you are condemned, but it's not going to nullify God's faithfulness because he will never condemn himself because he cannot because he is good. Your hard father that you thought you had to please to get stuff from is not nearly as hard as you think. And the rules he had were not so that you can please him because you're not capable. They were to show you your condemnation so that you would know the gift is not the rules. The gift is the father behind them who will make things right for you. See, he's setting us up. He's setting us up because there's some complex and beautiful things coming in Romans 3.21 and onward about this. Now, look what he says, okay? So God is always going to be faithful even when we are unfaithful. And then the next argument, boom, here we are. You can see it in the courtroom. The defense is working it, right? What good is it being a Jew? It's very good you had the father. Well, okay, fair enough, but we can't be unfaithful because if we are, he won't keep his promises and if he doesn't, he's unfaithful, so that can't work. No, no, God is faithful even when you are unfaithful. Really? Okay, 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 fair enough, give me a second. Let me think that through. God is faithful even when I'm unfaithful. <gasps> I got it, here's my next defense, ready? If God is faithful even when I'm unfaithful, then what good is being faithful? Uh-huh, we're back to dutiful son, what, what's the point? If I didn't have to be the dutiful son for God to be faithful and give me what I want, then why didn't I go do younger brother stuff? Because I've been doing this and it's hard. And and it's burdensome. And I thought I had to do it to get him to do what he needed to do for me but now you're telling me he doesn't. Ah, I'm going to go do it. And you see they're not actually believing this. They're arguing with Paul to say that's a ridiculous argument because if that's true then every every human being will go do whatever they want because they'll realize God's going to be so gracious he's going to excuse all your sin. Because isn't that what Paul is saying? Isn't that what he's saying? Even when you are unfaithful and you are horrible God is just going to love you anyways. That is a grace that excuses sin. Now Paul is going to set something up here that we're going to spend the rest of romans trying to figure out and when we do we're going to be like oh because what he's about to do here is the wonder of the gospel okay because we think god has to be either totally gracious excusing our sin or totally judgmental not excusing our sin but god has a plan that's bigger than both of those That makes them both true simultaneously. And that is the gospel in its truest form. So let's take a look how Paul lays this up. And prepares us for what's coming in the rest of Romans. Look at this. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Oh that's beautiful. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath on us? I, I speak in a human way. Here's what Paul's saying is. He's saying your argument is. That if, if my unrighteousness, uh, God is faithful despite my unrighteousness, then the best way to make God awesome is to be super unrighteous, right? Because the worse I am, the more he seems faithful. Do, do you see how that works? Well, it's like us, like, wow. You, you, for example, uh, you have a, you're in a relationship with someone, maybe a spouse or, or a kid, and they are just a disaster zone toward you. The worse they become, if you continue to remain faithful, the more beautiful your story becomes. See, that's what we've missed in our society. We think the cool thing to do is my spouse starts treating me bad and they, they're, they're unfaithful and they do stupid stuff. I, I got it. Okay, well, they deserve it. I bail. No, the beauty of the real story of redemption is when someone who does not need to be faithful continues to be faithful because faithfulness is not a burden, it is a gift. And, and so what they're saying here is the worse I get, the more God's faithfulness will be profound. So if that's the case, watch this now this is the self-defense, then how could God judge my unfaithfulness as wrong when my unfaithfulness is making him beautiful? See, so I can go be unfaithful and then God will high five me because he'll say, man, you are so unfaithful that it's made me look super good. (laughs) So then how can you judge me for my unfaithfulness? Because if you judge me for my unfaithfulness, then you're saying what I'm doing is wrong, but what I'm doing is making you awesome. What they're trying to say is God either has to excuse my sin or or God has to tolerate my sin or I'm not actually sinful. Do you see that? There's the, there's the three lines of defense. I'm not sinful. He has to tolerate my sin or he has to excuse my sin. And what Paul's going to say is you still don't understand the gospel because I haven't finished the book yet. So let me show you what God actually does. Watch this. <clears throat> Verse 6. By no means is what you just said true. For then, how could God judge the world? So this is a beautiful statement because here's what Paul is setting up for us. God is not excusing your sin with his grace because then he would not be just. And God is always just. God is judging your sin as he should because God is just. But if He were to do that without a secondary plan, then you and I are separated from God forever and damned. And that's not gonna go well for us. And then God doesn't keep his faithful promises that he made to us, which makes him not faithful, right? So how's God gonna keep his promises and be righteous, a righteous judge? How's he gonna be merciful and gracious, yet judge our sin as it ought to be judged? That is the grand question that is being laid on the table for us, preparing us for Romans chapter 3, 21 and onward. Watch this now, look what he says. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. The worse I get, the better God looks. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The worse I do, the better God looks. Why is he judging me? And why not do evil that good may come? Why not do that? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What Paul just said here is this. You're asking the question, If God is going to judge me, how can he judge me if what I'm doing is making him more awesome, right? I shouldn't be judged. And what Paul's saying is, no, no, no. God is going to judge the world and everyone in the seat of condemnation. He's going to do that. So buckle up. But what you guys are accusing me, Paul, of saying is that the way God is going to overcome judging you is to excuse your sin, but he's not going to. That is slanderous. And you've accused me of saying that. Do you see how they just said that? If what you're saying is true, then we ought to just behave badly. Because frankly, that's going to make God look better. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. That's a gross misunderstanding of the heart of God. You see, it's still self-centered, isn't it? You're still asking the same question. What do I get out of this deal? Here's the deal. If, if to get what I want, I need to be dutiful, I shall be dutiful. If to get what I want, I don't need to be dutiful, be dutiful. I shall not be dutiful because dutiful is not a fruit of what I've discovered. It is an obligation by which I live to get what I need from the God who created me. This is the opposite of the gospel. Where is the space where we are neither obligated to duty to gain the mercy and grace of God, nor are we set free to be unrighteous because we don't have to be dutiful? Where is that space And Paul is beginning to set that space up for us. There comes a place where when you discover the fullness of the gospel, you will stop having to be dutiful to earn the right to live in the house with God. But you will not stop being dutiful because the reason you'll be dutiful will have utterly changed. And you will discover that you are not dutiful, but you are free. And you are living by his ways because he is freedom. Let me give you a clue about what's gonna happen in the verses to come. We're not going there today, but it's coming, right? The gift of the gospel, what's being set up here is this, the gift of the gospel, the redemptive work of Jesus, is that despite the fact that you were either the prodigal son running, ignoring God, doing your own thing, or the dutiful son living in the house, religious, following the little boxes, devotions every other day, oh my gosh, church your whole life, Mm, So good. Regardless of which one of those two you live in, the gift of God is that both of you don't deserve to live in the house, but both of you will. And both of your stories will be beautiful. Both of them. When I was growing up, (laughs) when I was growing up, uh, I, I, I had a rough time Uh, understanding how my story was super cool for God because I grew up in a home uh, where Jesus was always part of things. So you know those little testimonies you used to do where you get the little sheet and then it would say before Jesus and then dot, dot, dot. And then you write about your, your horrid life before Jesus. And then it had the come to Jesus moment, dot, dot, dot. And you wrote about your awesome experience. And then it had after Jesus and you were like, oh, so good, so good. And then you'd have somebody come give a testimony and they'd do the before part and it was NC-17 and you were like, can you say those words in church? I don't know. Oh my gosh, there's drugs, there's prison, there's, there's tattoos and it's insane. Um, and, and, and then there's the moment that they come to Jesus and it's like in a field in the middle of a lightning storm where they're, they're, they're high on something and then, and then there's this evangelist that appears with an angel behind him and, and they're like, Grr! and then they fall on the ground and they worship the God of the universe and then right afterwards, clean as a whistle tattoos even miraculously disappeared, right? You know those stories. Here was mine. Before Jesus, I was one. I don't remember. I was a colicky baby, so perhaps talk to my mom. She'll tell you how terrible I was, but I don't really remember, so not a whole lot. I screamed a bunch. Then I came to Jesus. Hmm, somewhere between one and ten. I kind of discover Jesus. So I make something up. There was this thing at a Baptist church where there was an evangelist and I think I said the prayer. Oh good, I have something to put on a paper. (laughs) Wasn't lightning, dramatic. I already knew it, but I kind of went, it's new to me. It wasn't really, but they seemed excited. (laughs) And then afterwards, once I knew Jesus, oh, it was the same as before I knew Jesus because I always knew Jesus. So I don't really remember the, the other. That's a terrible story. There's no lightning, there's no angel, there's no tattoos, there's nothing. I mean, don't get me wrong, by the way, I I like tattoos, so there's nothing wrong with tattoos, they don't necessarily equate to prison. I'm just saying, so if you have one, we're totally cool, so do I. Um, Anyways, point is this, that um, I got kids, I got kids, and once I got kids, I realized, I, I, I realized, oh my goodness. Do you know which story I want for my kids? My story. I don't want the other one for them. I don't want prison and lightning storms and all sorts of stuff. I just want mine. That someday they get a piece of paper and it says before Jesus and they go, I don't really remember. See, the dutiful son, our temptation is that we will think that we're in the house because we've been awesome. But we've been awesome because Jesus saw fit to to save us from the terrible story, not to save us through the terrible story. And and to the prodigal, you think that you wrestle with the fact that whether you're really redeemed, but you are because you're in the house. And Jesus saved you through the terrible story, not from it, because your story matters to all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. You have a beautiful story. And it matters to his story. And you're both in the house. That's what Romans chapter 3 verse 1 through 7 is trying to tell us. You're in the house because he is always faithful even when you're not. You're in the house. Because he will fulfill his promises even when you don't. And then you know what the fruit of the gospel is? If the gift of the gospel is that you get to live in the house because he's awesome, then here's the fruit of the gospel. Since you now know how awesome he is, wouldn't you think that everything he tells us to do would be for freedom and not for bondage? Wouldn't you think that the dutiful things we think are rules to keep him happy are actually beautiful boundaries to keep us safe? You start living a righteous life, not because you feel you need to prove something to God, but because he's already proven something to you. That he's not a hard father that you're trying to please. He is a good father trying to keep you safe. Do it his way, because when you do, you are safe. Do it your way, and if you do, you will not be safe, but he will still be faithful. We are free, we are free indeed. Welcome to Romans, baby. Let's pray. God, you're so good. You're so good. We're right here in the middle of the bad news, God. We just found out we're all condemned, whether we were in the jury box or on on the condemned seat. We've laid out our defense and it falls flat. And all that is born out of our defense is your extraordinary faithfulness. All that's born out of our defense is your extraordinary grace that doesn't come to excuse our sin but that does the necessary redemptive work to undo our sin so that we are righteous not because you have excused us but we are righteous because you've paid for us. God, all this is yet to be found in the book of Romans so we're excited, we really are but we thank you for this little glimpse that you've given us in the middle of the bad news that things are about to get more extraordinary than we've ever imagined possible. Thank you that we discover through the gospel that our dutiful life buys us nothing and yet we still gain everything. And our rebellious life should buy us absolute disaster. And yet your grace buys us a way back. Remind us that The gift of the gospel is you, not what you give us, not the blessings we can extract from you, not a better life or more stuff, not happiness and health and wealth, just you, oracles, revelations, relationship with you. And then a discovery of your precepts, your ways, your commands, your instructions that as we put them into practice, we discover are actually for us for our safety, for our well-being not to please you because you are already delighted in us. God, you're too good. Whether we are prodigal or whether we are dutiful, remind us that neither of those matter much because we are condemned because we are sinful. And yet, neither of them undo your grace and mercy in your redemptive work to undo our sin by paying the price for it. Stir in us an awe of not only who you are, but what you've called us to live like so that we might live out the freedoms you've set us free to enjoy by following your precepts, doing things your way, trusting your word to be a gift to guide us into our freedom. We love you, Jesus. Amen.